So by a show of hands this morning, how many musical fans do we have in the room? Wow, more than I thought. I'll be honest. Okay, so how many people have what I call a guilty pleasure movie? Now, when I say guilty pleasure, here's what I mean. It's a movie that you really enjoy secretly, but you're too ashamed or embarrassed to tell other people that you really like it. How many people have one of those? Few of those. <laughs> so, this seems like a trustworthy group, so I'm going to share my guilty pleasure movie. It's Moulin Rouge. I don't know if you've ever seen it with uh, Nicole Kidman. Uh, I, I, uh, it was one that when I first saw it at the theater, I went with another guy that was about my size, a lot younger than me. He talked me into going to see it because he was a huge Nicole Kidman fan. And I had never even heard of the movie. I just went along with them. And I'm like watching this. I'm like, what on earth is happening right now? But I walked out of that movie. And that movie, some of the songs and things like that just stuck with me. And so I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to give that another chance. I'm going to watch it again. And, I, and then I was like, I think I'm going to watch it again. And then I bought the DVD. And, and now, like every year, like I watch this thing. And it's kind of my guilty pleasure movie. Well, back in December at the PPAC, Moulin Rouge was here. And my neighbors across the street got Wendy and I tickets to be able to go see Moulin Rouge. And it was, it was an incredible show. It was an incredible show. But one of the things I remembered when I was watching the musical version of this show is the fact that they start musicals with this thing called a prelude. And usually the prelude is like highlights of all of the different songs that you're going to hear throughout the musical. And what we're going to see today in the text we're going to look at is really kind of a prelude. We've been spending time in this biography of Jesus called Matthew, and Matthew gives us a prelude of Jesus' ministry that we're going to see not just in the five, next five chapters, but really kind of throughout the entire book up into his crucifixion on the cross. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25 this morning. If you've got your journals, you can follow along, or the words will be here on the screen. This is what it says. And he, this is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So here... Matthew gives us the zoomed out perspective on what Jesus is going to be doing. And he does three things. The first thing that we see Jesus doing is Jesus goes. And it says that he goes throughout all of Galilee. Now Galilee was a region in the northern part of Israel. It was about the size of Rhode Island. So you can kind of get a mental picture of the size of this region. And it was, as Caleb shared last week, it was a pretty heavily populated region. 
Uh, the first century historian Josephus says that there were about, at that time of Jesus' time, there were about 200 cities in this area that had populations of 15,000 or more people. So if you do the math, there's about 3 million people living in this region of Galilee, and Jesus would go on foot, because obviously no cars or vehicles, on foot would travel from village to village, from city to city throughout this entire region, spreading this good news. And the second thing that we see Jesus doing is Jesus tells, right? We see, it says that Jesus taught in the synagogues. Now, if you're not super familiar with like what a synagogue is or what Jewish culture was like, so in each of these villages or sometimes in some of the bigger areas or be multiple, the synagogues were these centralized houses of worship that the Jewish people would gather out, sometimes multiple times during the week, and they were overseen by somebody called a rabbi, which basically means a teacher. In, in the modern day, you know, you may think in terms of like a priest or a pastor or something like that. That was kind of the Jewish pastor or priest. And what they would do in these gatherings, in these synagogues, is they would have a giant scroll that would be the entire Old Testament, and the rabbi would get up and he would read a portion of that Old Testament, and then after he read it, he would sit down and he would begin teaching about that passage of Scripture. It's very similar to what we do on Sundays here, where we talk about a portion of Scripture and we teach on it. And it would be very common in that time for rabbis who would do some traveling around in that region to be invited to come into those synagogues and to be able to teach in those synagogues, especially rabbis who had a following. And this certainly would be Jesus. So this is not an uncommon thing. But Jesus isn't just teaching in these synagogues. He's proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. Now you may have heard this before, may not have heard this before, but this word gospel is the Greek word euangelion, which simply translates into mean good news. And in Jesus' time, this wasn't necessarily associated with religion. It wasn't a religious word. It certainly wasn't connected to Jesus at this time. In fact, specifically what this word was connected to, or who this word was connected to, was Caesar, the Roman emperor at this time. In fact, there are inscriptions that talk about the gospel of Caesar, and what this gospel of Caesar was, was it was this announcement of a new era, of a new kingdom, with a fresh peace and justice and a promise of security. And each time, Caesar would go out and conquer some new territory through his army, or he would squash a rebellion. They would send out messengers because there was no internet, there was no TV, there was no radio, there was no centralized way of communication. They would send these messengers out all across the entire kingdom, which at this time was much of the known world, and they would spread the gospel of Caesar. So it's not by coincidence that Matthew and the other writers of the New Testament use the word euangelion, or gospel, to describe the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. It's a direct comparison between what Caesar has done and what Jesus is doing. Jesus, the Caesar's kingdom brings Roman peace 
and justice through violence and force. Whereas Jesus brings true peace and justice out of a radically different way. Luke gives us some really cool insight into basically kind of what would happen when Jesus would go into these synagogues to teach. In Luke chapter 4, he talks about a specific synagogue that Jesus went into in his own hometown of Nazareth. And in that instance, Jesus opens up a section of the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61, and he reads from the scroll. And this this particular part of Isaiah was specifically describing the coming Messiah. Like it's a messianic prophecy. And Jesus gets done reading this section and he sits down and they're expecting him to teach on this passage and basically says, this passage has been fulfilled in front of you right now. He tells them that he is the fulfillment, that He is this long-awaited Messiah. This is the good news, the gospel that He brings. But Jesus isn't just going, and Jesus isn't just telling. Jesus is also healing. He heals. He heals every disease, every sickness, every illness. He heals every affliction. This would include like deafness and muteness, paralysis, blindness, possession or oppression by demons. Like He's doing it all. Now this doesn't mean that He's healing every person. What Matthew is trying to convey is that there's nothing that Jesus can't heal. Like He heals everything. And these healings weren't like parlor tricks or manipulating people into believing they were healed. Jesus was healing impossible things. And all these things, going and telling and healing, Jesus is establishing His new kingdom. He is letting people know that He is the one that they've been waiting for. He is the long-awaited Messiah who has come to rescue them. And at the same time, He's demonstrating what His new kingdom is all about. He's going to ultimately restore things to the way God originally Design them to be. And unlike Caesar's kingdom, where peace and justice were ushered in by force and grandeur and maintained by violence and and intimidation, Jesus' kingdom is ushered in through sacrifice and service and through love and an open invitation. Jesus willingly sacrifices His life as payment for our sin and He gives us His right standing with God. He gives us the hope of life forever with Him through His resurrection from His dead, but His kingdom is so much more than personal salvation. It's all about the restoration of all things to the way God had originally designed them to be. That is why we see Jesus healing Illnesses and afflictions that are not a part of God's original design. Sin brought this brokenness into the world. Now, I want you to hear me clearly on this. What I'm not saying 
is that we are punished by God with sickness or some sort of affliction because we sin. Rather that sin in general has brought us a brokenness to this world that includes these things. And Jesus' healing of every disease and affliction demonstrates that all things will ultimately be restored in His new kingdom to the way that God originally designed to be. The Hebrews have a word for this. The Jewish people have a word. It's the word shalom, which means so much more than peace. It means to bring back things to the way that God originally intended them to be. But right now, we live in this messy middle. We live in the, the in-between of what has already happened and what is yet to come. And here's what I mean by this. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, He made a way for us to be forgiven of all of our sin and to be reconciled back to God. And, and we, we accept this by putting our faith in Him, which means we trust Him with our lives. We follow Him. That's what faith in Him means. And we are continuing to be made new by God's Spirit living inside of us. And He restores us to be more and more like we were originally designed to be. And in this way, we actively live in the kingdom now. This is the already part of God's kingdom. But there is still a part of His kingdom that has not yet arrived. We still wrestle with sin in our lives. We still struggle in broken relationships. We still have a world that has a lot of bad stuff happening where we have shootings and we have earthquakes and hurricanes and nor'easters. There is still death and disease and hurt and pain. And the completion of Jesus' kingdom happens when He comes again. We get a glimpse of what this completed kingdom looks like in Revelation chapter 21 verses 3 and 4. He says, John's writing, he says, I heard a shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. What an incredible picture of what Jesus' kingdom, completed kingdom, will ultimately look like. All things will be restored back to the way God had originally designed them to be. And we will be in God's presence forever, just like Adam and Eve were before they broke God's trust. Everything will be right in perfect relationship with God, and it's beyond anything that we could comprehend but like I said, right now we're in the middle of the already and the not yet. This in-between, we are a part of His kingdom that is actively working and moving. And this is what we see happening next. Matthew 4.24 So His fame, meaning Jesus' fame, spread throughout all Syria. And they brought Him all the sick those afflicted with various disease and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and He healed them. How did Jesus' fame spread? How did people find Jesus? People talked about Him. 
They shared what they saw him do or what they had experienced done to them. You know, generally, we are people who love to share our experiences with others. It's really what fuels social media. Think about all the things we share with others. We share the great movies that we've seen or the beautiful places that we've visited, the best places that we've eaten at, the products that make our lives better or easier, or even that great deal we got on this great blouse, right? And the list goes on and on and on. Like, I I have no problem sharing or talking about the fact that I have recently found this great love of true true crime documentaries. I don't know why, but I'm just like obsessed right now with true, true crime documentaries. And I Talk to people about them. Like every once in a while, I'll just like, you got to see this documentary. It's unbelievable. You won't believe how this ends. We have little trouble or no trouble sharing about the things we enjoy doing and the things we've experienced with others. And yet sometimes it's hard for us to share about Jesus. Why is that? I think there's probably multiple reasons, but I think there's probably three main reasons. I think sometimes we just, we don't think that we know enough. Like, we're just not comfortable enough. What if we're asked a question that we just don't know the answer to? Or I think we think that maybe people will think less of us or that we will be rejected by sharing about Jesus with others. Or, or maybe we just assume that somebody else is going to do it. Like, that's somebody else's job. Sometimes when we read a verse like this, we believe that it must have been easier for them Like, this must have been easier. Like, Jesus is right there and he's doing these miraculous things, right? I mean, that's so much easier to talk about, the miracles that Jesus is doing with others. But was it really any easier for them? Did you notice where Matthew says Jesus' fame is spreading? It's in Syria. Like, Syria is not a part of Israel. Syria is kind of to the north and east of Israel. It's hostile territory. It's not like... Jewish friendly territory. And can you imagine a conversation that would take place from, a, from Syria and for the, from the people in Syria, the Syrians? Like one person saying, hey, you got to come and see this guy from this insignificant village in, in, in Galilee, this Jewish, like former carpenter that now is kind of like this teacher guy, and he's doing these incredible things, and they start talking about the fact of the things that they've seen Jesus do, and they're like, you got to be kidding me. Like, there's nobody who can do that kind of stuff. Can you imagine how hard that conversation would be to try to convince somebody that Jesus actually was doing all of these things that they saw him do? And not only that, but Syria is miles and miles and miles away. Like, all of Syria, like, it would take days to walk to where Jesus was in Galilee, and then you're not even sure where he's at in Galilee. So you have to find him once you get there. And that journey is long, and that journey is hard, and that journey is, is fraught with like danger. And I don't think that their barriers are any different than our barriers are today. You know, they didn't know who Jesus was other than the fact that he healed people. And they 
could have taken the risk that people would have said, you're crazy. Like, what you're saying to me is crazy. Like, that's crazy talk. There couldn't be this guy that's just going around healing people. That doesn't make any sense. They could have easily been made fun of or rejected. Or they could have just assumed, you know, he, he's doing so, so many good things. He's got these people. Maybe other people will hear about it. I don't just say anything. Like, maybe that will be the case. But notice this group of people isn't just telling others about Jesus. They're bringing people to Jesus. I mean, they are making the trip again. And they're taking a risk. Like, what if they show up and Jesus has run out of power? Like, the juice is gone. Or what if they show up and, and the, the, the person they brought, like, it's too hard or this guy's got too much baggage. Like, there's no way that Jesus is going to be able to heal them. Like, you think of the risk that's involved. But they come with them anyway because they knew what Jesus could do. And Jesus has done so much more for us. He's met our greatest need. And no one has to travel miles to encounter him. He's available to us wherever we are, whenever we are, in whatever condition we're in. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 34, 18 in the New Living Translation. It says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. I mean, we've seen what Jesus can do. We know who we were before Jesus We've seen the difference that he's made in us. The healing that Jesus brings us is so much deeper and significant than the diseases and the illnesses that he was curing then. He brings us from death to life because he restores this broken relationship that we have with God. He fills us with a peace that passes understanding and a joy that rises above every circumstance. And he is always with us. He will never forsake us regardless of what we're going through and what we're encountering and what difficult or challenging season that we have in life. He is always with us. And here's the truth. We are surrounded by people in our lives who need Jesus. They are our friends. They are our family. They are our coworkers. They are our neighbors. And just like those in Jesus' time who had disease or affliction, and they likely would have sought any kind of relief, they would have wanted any relief from whatever they were doing, People today in our lives are desperately seeking to find a way to fill the void they feel in their lives, and they fill it with everything but Jesus. They put their faith and hope in a cure or in a political party or in some sort of a self-help or in a better career or a new place to live or a bigger bank account or a new relationship or a healthy lifestyle or just something to numb the pain of life. All these are efforts to seek healing that can only be found in Jesus. We have a story to share. We have an opportunity to bring people 
to Jesus. I love what, what Paul writes. He writes a series of questions in Romans chapter 10. He says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've not heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. Did you hear the progression? It starts with being sent. It starts with this idea of being sent. That, and that's what I hope that, that we get the idea that every time we get together in this morning, on Sunday mornings when we gather together or we, or, or we meet in groups, that it's not just for ourselves, but it's the idea that, that we are being sent out, that we are always on mission, that we are praying for and we're seeking for opportunities to share what Jesus has done for us, the difference he has made in our lives. And after being sent, then you have to go, right? You have to go. It doesn't have to be across the world, although that's certainly a great option. But it could be just as simple as walking to the office next to yours, or to the cubicle next to yours, or the workstation next to yours. Or it could be just walking across your yard or across the street. I mean, you just have to go. And then there's this idea of telling. I mean, it's great to live like as if Jesus is your Lord and, and to live differently than others, but it's so much more important that we actually speak why. Like we tell, we speak what the difference that Jesus has made to us. It's something that we just can't be quiet about, that we have to talk about this. And that's why, you know, we're offering this telling your God story class because sometimes we're just really uncomfortable with what that means and, and we think that we have to dig into scripture and there's nothing wrong with that when we're sharing about Jesus. But I tell you what, the most compelling thing is our story, your story, my story. Nobody can argue with your story. And every person has a story to tell. Every person who's come to know Jesus has a story to tell. And we just want to share just different ways that this can happen to make it a reality for everybody to be able to share their story. So I hope that you'll consider being a part of this equipped class. It's very, very important. But, but then it kind of transitions, like those first three things, to be sent, to go, and to tell, like that's our responsibility. Like that, that's the thing that God calls us to do. And then there's a part that really is kind of beyond our ability, right? I mean, this is where we trust God. It's that they have to hear. And it doesn't mean just like to hear the things we say, but to really let it sink in. And that's the role that, that really the Spirit plays in their lives. Our role is just to tell. It's their role to hear. It's their part. And then after they hear and they kind of listen to it, then they need to believe. Like that's again a choice that, that they have is whether or not they believe that this is true. And then they have to make the decision to call on Him, to put their faith in Jesus, we don't do it all, but we have a part to play. You may, you may never know how God will use you in somebody else's faith journey. I had a really good friend in uh, law school. He was part of the study group that I was a part of. And usually in law school, you try to get some people together that have similar classes to you so you can kind of like bounce stuff off of it. And Mike was in my group, and Mike knew where I stood as far as my relationship 
with God. And, and, and I will tell you this, I was just like coming back to God. I went through a period of time where I kind of rejected God in the church, and I was just kind of in my journey back. And so I wasn't super strong in what I believed. I was still kind of wrestling through all of that. But, but Mike knew that my wife and I went to church, and, 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 and Mike was very vocal about the fact that he was an atheist. Like, he didn't believe in God. And, and every once in a while, whether it was, you know, between classes or one of our study groups, whatever it was, that we would have these conversations randomly and, and seldomly about this. And if you're not familiar with, like, the process that you go through to become a lawyer, um, at the end of your education, they do something called a bar exam, which has nothing to do with learning how to prepare drinks, but it has everything to do with, like, passing these these enormous tests that determine whether or not you're in. And, and when I took the bar exam, there were two parts to it. I don't know if that's still the case today. I'm assuming it is. But there would be the, the local test, the, the statewide test, which is usually write as much information as you know about a particular thing. Then you had a break, and then you, the next day you took what they called the multi-state. And, and Mike and I, we had to travel a distance for where this test was taken. And so we had decided that in order for us poor law school students to save some money, we would share a room. And it was also an opportunity for us to be able to kind of study together as, as we're getting ready for that next day. And, and we stay up pretty late that night getting ready for the multi-state part of the bar exam. And we're just starting to settle to go to sleep. And from the other bed, Mike goes, Tell me why you believe in God. And I'm thinking, why now? <laughs> like, this is the last conversation I want to have. Let's talk more about what's on the test tomorrow. Like, I don't want to talk about God right now. Although I'm praying to him, you know, about this thing that I got to do the next day. And, and he wants to engage in this conversation. Like, he wants me to prove that God exists. And I'm like, dude. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning. We're up at 7 to do this test thing. Like, I don't want to do this. And so I go through some standard stuff, and he shoots it all down. And I finally say, you know what, Mike? I said, the only thing that I can point to as evidence that God exists is a life that's been changed. And I just told him a little bit of my story. Like, really brief. And then he was quiet, and I just assumed I put him to sleep, <laughs> which I'm really good at doing. Years later, years later, Mike moves to Kansas City, practices law there, and I get a random email from him. Somehow he had tracked down where I worked, and somehow he tracked down where I was. He said, I want you to know something. My wife and I have been a part of a church for a long time now. And uh, that conversation that we had that night really started my journey a different way. And I, and I just thought, man, that was nothing I did. I just wanted to get out of the conversation. <laughs> There's a principle that I kind of learned from somebody. I'm not exactly sure who to give credit to, but we use it. We talk about it a lot. I share it with our staff team a lot. It's, it's this idea of don't say somebody's no for them. It's like this idea that, you know, you, you, you should go ahead and ask somebody and let them decline. Let them say no. But I think the same principle is true when it comes to faith, right? How many times do we say people's no for them? 
Look at what happened when people shared about Jesus. Matthew 4, verse 25. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Where did all of these people come from? It started with one person telling another person about Jesus. It started with one person bringing another person to Jesus. It's simple, but it takes courage. It's intimidating, and it takes trust. But remember, God is with you. He doesn't leave you alone in the opportunities that He creates for us to share our stories of the amazing things that God has done for us through Jesus with others. Good soil shares the good news about Jesus. Will you be that one? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this example of how people would just be so excited to share about how you were healing. Um, God, I would ask that you would work and move in us, God, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to hear more clearly from you. And, and Father, that you would give us the boldness and courage to be able to share the incredible things that you have done for us through Jesus. Father, that you would continue to make us good soil, God. Thank you for Jesus and thank you for all that he has done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.